And if you would turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we take just a momentary detour, but really not a detour, and consider for a moment the Old Testament chief of sinners. You've heard a moment ago that Paul describes himself in the New Testament as that chief of sinners. He says this, the saying, he says, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for me for this reason, that in me as the foremost or chief, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul understood that his conversion was dramatic. More importantly, he realized that his conversion was a message, a sermon for the church. It demonstrated the patience, the long-suffering of God. Jesus not only saved Paul from his sins, he also made Paul an apostle and called him into an extraordinary ministry. Paul's whole story then demonstrates that God is ab- what God is able to do even with the chief of sinners. But Paul's story is not the first biblical example of this pattern. When you think about the chief of sinners, I know for many of us, another name comes up, and that name is David. As with Paul, David plays an enormous role in the life of the church. Most of the Psalms were written by him, and the promises made to him are breathtaking. The scriptures call him a man after God's own heart. And yet, David committed one of the most heinous acts of sin recorded in scripture. And to make it worse, He didn't do this in the early part of his life before he knew the Lord. Rather, this sin was done at the height of his power when God had given him victory and when he should have been most grateful and the most settled in his faith. I think Paul is the chief of sinners for those who do not know the Lord and come suddenly to see their error. But what about those who are believers and fall into terrible sin? For so many of us, David is that chief of sinners that we learn from. And so I want to take today an honest look at what David did, what happened to him, and what we can learn from this Old Testament chief of sinners. So if you would please stand as we read together God's word. We'll read all of 2 Samuel chapter 11, found on page 308 and 309 of your pew Bible. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happens late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. 
Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are campaigning in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your servant lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, in this 4,000-year-old account, we see so much of our own life and world. 
people who see children and romance as a way to get what they want and are willing to kill to protect themselves and their future. These things are epidemic in our society and they reside in each one of our hearts as well. For as Jesus reminds us, when we are angry with a brother, we contemplate murder and our hearts and our eyes are often full of idolatry and adultery. So Father, we come to you as sinners with David, looking for your grace and mercy and asking for your strength to walk faithfully with you, praying that you would work among us, giving us repentance, and that you would show mercy to our neighbors, our friends, our family, granting them repentance with us. These things we pray and ask your blessing now in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Strictly speaking, strictly speaking, it was not necessary for God to include this portion of David's life. It's not, if you think about it, it's not absolutely essential to David's bigger story or history. And it's not really essential per se to the big story of redemption that the Bible itself is telling. And no doubt many biblical figures committed serious sins, which we know nothing about because God uh, saw fit not to record them in Holy Scripture precisely because they are not germane to the, the bigger story of Scripture. Not only is it not necessary per se, it's, it's actually not normal for God to do this. I don't know if you've thought about this. Um, our God normally is one who forgives sin and covers it removing it as far from us as the east is from the west. God is not one to record and hold on to our sins so that he can constantly shame and humiliate us. We do that to each other, but God does not do that to his people. We should be ashamed of ourselves when we do this to each other. And Jesus urges us to remember how much we have been forgiven by God. So this was not necessary, nor was it normal, but it was right. Because in this story, in these chapters, we have the single strongest revelation of the working out of the gospel in the life of a believer. There's no one in the Bible of David's caliber or importance who sins more terribly. And there's no one in the Bible who after committing this level of sin, went on to write much of our Bible and to lead God's people. In David, in David, the believer who sinned, you see that the gospel is not just something that gets you into the Christian faith, but rather it is also the very thing that holds you there day by day and moment by moment. The Christian life is one of repentance and faith. I've described it to many of you before as a pendulum. On the one end, the gospel tells you that your sin is more pervasive, more terrible, more entrenched in you than you ever dreamed. But yet on the other hand, the gospel pendulum swings back, reminding you that God's love for you is better than you can imagine in your wildest dreams. It is this gospel stretching, if you will, that this story forces upon us. 
It will take us down into the terrible, ugly, horrible, and hopeless pit of sin. There we will see just how evil David was, how much devastation his sin brought on others. We will also see ourselves. This is the hardest part of the story. We can look at David and see our own hearts. If I do my job right this morning and you do your job, which is listening prayerfully with an open heart, we should feel a little nausea, a tad sick as we go through this part, a little troubled, sobered, maybe scared straight, warned, and even at times confused. But then at the end, because of Jesus, David's story does have a happy ending. We will find ourselves with David lifted up out of the pit by grace alone that can only be called truly amazing grace. David's shocking failure alongside our own sins will remind us how much we need a perfect savior and king. David's sin also serves to, if you will, shut the door on ever looking for salvation in any other person, idolizing a pastor or an elder or a deacon, a parent or a friend or anyone else seems so very foolish when you have this story in your hands. Jesus alone emerges as the only true spotless lamb, the only real hero of scripture. The whole account of David's sin, if we hear it out, it leaves us in a very good place. It leaves us in a very good place. It reminds us that sin is serious and has consequences. David was forgiven, but his life would never be the same. However, these consequences were laid on him by a loving God to whom he was fully reconciled. David, a believer, learned to see himself as the chief of sinners and as a forgiven sinner. And from that experience, out of that experience, not only were the Psalms written, Psalms like Psalm 51, but actually I would argue the book of Proverbs was based around this experience in David's life. So this morning, let's look together then at David's sin as it is revealed here in this chapter. We're not doing this to be morbid. It may feel that way at times, but rather we're doing this because we believe it's a path that will lead us to real and lasting joy. Until we learn with David and Paul to be horrified by our sin, to see its ugly presence and its work in our lives, we will never be jubilant about salvation. It is a timeless truth. It is a truth, brothers and sisters, that those most aware of their sin are those most enthusiastic about their salvation. A small salvation, a salvation that just improves us or puts a final polish on our lives, that kind of salvation will never bring forth loud cries of praise. But when we see in these great men of Scripture our own hearts, when we go deep into the ugliness of sin, then and only then can we rush up with joy in God's grace. So first of all, as we go through this ugly but wonderful chapter, notice with me in verses 1 through 5 how sin dehumanizes others. Sin dehumanizes others. 
So notice with me in 1 through 5 that we sense almost immediately that something is wrong. In the very first verse, we're told that David remained in comfort while Israel went out to fight. This is a disturbing note because up to this point, part of what made David famous and such a great leader was that he led Israel. He literally led Israel, unlike his predecessor, Saul. Like a good shepherd, he went out before them. That's the language in the Hebrew. For David, he would go out before them, and then he would bring them back safely as a good shepherd with his warriors. And this was the main duty of a king. In fact, when David was made king, when he became king, these very words were used about him. So why, verse 1, is the good shepherd not with the sheep? Instead, he takes a walk and he spots a married woman taking a bath. In Israel, in their day, you were required to have a fence around your roof so that people could not fall off. It was actually part of the law. So Bathsheba was not displaying herself here. She probably thought she was safe behind those walls. What happens in the next few verses is cruel and it is ugly. David inquires, calls her, and then sleeps with her, knowing that she is a married woman and that her husband is off fighting bravely for David. And notice that there is no love here at all. There's no romance. Let's not fool ourselves about that. Notice that David in verse 3 does not even know her name. There is no relationship, no friendship. This isn't true love and this isn't a friendship that went too far. No, this is lust in all its bare and open ugliness. She is not a person to David. She's not a person. She has become a thing. Pastors have noted often that the first five verses in Hebrew contain no real dialogue, just actions. He saw, he called, he took. Bathsheba probably had little or no choice in the matter. In those days, the king could require almost anything, and your life depended on your obedience. Maybe she was afraid that if she resisted, he would have killed her or her husband. These were well-founded fears because that is exactly what David went on to do, to murder her husband. David's sin is so horrible because, of course, he had so much authority. The authority that allowed him to do this, the porch that allowed him to look down and see everyone else, all of these things were gifts from God who had taken him as a shepherd boy and raised him so high. In the face of such amazing love, how could David betray God like this? This was his sister in the Lord. But this is how sin works. It turns people into objects. You no longer care about your wife as a person. It's just what you can get from her. You no longer care about your church and its needs. It's just what you can get from her. That woman on the screen... You don't know her name, her father. You have no relationship. She is just a thing. I've cited before with many of the men in private a study done years ago that studied men's 
brains when they see a woman in a bikini. Researchers noted that it's the exact same pattern of brain activity that they see when a man sees a power tool. And so David also demeaned her glory as the image of God's glory. But this is always the way sin is. Sin is always about dehumanizing our neighbor, seeing them only in the light of what they can do for me. If you want to understand the entire debate this week over abortion, here it is revealed to you. These children are not seen as people or as humans or as persons with names and faces, but rather as objects to be disposed of when inconvenient. But in doing that as a society, we are walking in paths we have walked in for many years in the way we have treated thousands, millions of people in many, many different circumstances. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it so well. He said, the natural life that is the sinful life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired to take advantage of others, to exploit the whole universe. Sin dehumanizes others. Second, notice in verses 6 through 13 that sin leads to lies. When we engage in sin and we are convinced and convicted by our conscience, we must either repent, face the truth, or we must cover it up. We must lie. Adam and Eve did this in the garden, remember? They sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit, and then they went and they hid themselves. When you or I refuse to face our sin head on, we immediately begin a process of hiding. We may not be aware of it, but the cover-up has begun. So you see in verses 6 through 13, David tries to lie his way out of his sin. He calls Uriah back to town and urges him to go home and sleep with his wife. Apparently Bathsheba has agreed to this plan as well. This will make Uriah believe that he is the father of the child and will cover up David's sin. Verses 7 and 8 especially are very ugly. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was prospering. He's making small talk, you see, and hiding his true motives. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food followed him from the king. See how David is acting as if nothing has happened. Chit-chat, a gift of food. Verse 11 should have broken the spell and brought conviction to David. It should have awoken David out of his lives. Uriah is acting so nobly in verse 11. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? When this plan of deception finally fails, David invents another plan. He'll get Uriah drunk. And with his guard down, Uriah will return home where Bathsheba is anxiously waiting to do her part in the cover-up. But Uriah, again, is too faithful, too loyal. Uriah here is presented to us, you see, as the anti-David, the opposite of David. David is at home while his men are out in the field. Uriah refuses to go home while his men are in the field. David is playing around with Uriah's wife, but Uriah is too noble even to do that while his men are in the field. 
Humanly speaking, this nobility in Uriah should have broken the spell on David, but it didn't. How was it that while he was plotting this, while he watched faithful Uriah, he managed not to be convicted? You see, there can only be one answer. No one lies to you as much as you lie to yourself. He was living a complete lie. We call this hardness of heart. You see, normally we sin and very quickly, especially if it's a significant sin, we feel conviction and shame. But David has settled into his sin. He's living in it and it has become his life. He's living a lie and lying to everyone around him because sin is so deceitful. There are many problems and weaknesses with those of us in the Reformed tradition. I try to be open about those issues, but I think I can say that one of our strengths, one of the good things, is that we are one of the few Christian communities that actively encourages people to suspect themselves, not in a morbid way, but in a sober way. No one lies to you as much as you lie to you. So let Jeremiah 17 be not just a proof text, but a life verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Thirdly, we see as sin led to lying, so sin finally leads to death in verses 14 through 25. As in the garden, sin leads to death. Uriah and others, not just Uriah, but other men, end up dying because of David's sin. Up to this point in our story, you can go back and see this later. If you want to read the whole of the story of David, it's wonderful. Uh, David has been just rising and rising, uh, winning wars, receiving promises, governing justly. But from this point on, really, the rest of David's story is filled with death. Even though he found forgiveness, and I don't want to take anything away from that, and we'll talk about God's amazing grace, there is real consequences. This ends in death. So, for example, notice verse 24. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah. In the context, it's clear what Joab did. He sent Uriah and some other men on what we would call today a suicide mission. So not only is David responsible for the death of Uriah, he is responsible for the death of these men as well. But the carnage does not stop there. Later in chapter 12, David and Bathsheba's child dies. My guess is, and, and the Bible does not say this, but I believe that Bathsheba was probably so scarred by the whole series of events that it affected her pregnancy. And in this way, God judged them both, and their sin literally led to death. Could this be the exact moment, in fact, that James had in mind when he wrote James 1.15? Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. But it didn't even stop there. Absalom, David's son, will in a few chapters attempt a revolt. He will try to kill his own father. David will find himself on the run. When Absalom takes David's palace, do you remember the atrocities that Absalom committed? 
He took his father's concubines, his wives. He put up a tent on the same porch where Bathsheba was seen that day. And he violated all of his wives, all of David's wives and concubines. He too, like his father, saw, inquired, and took the exact same pattern and then later dies. One last thing, but very important, and I want to hammer this home. The women in this story have their lives completely destroyed by men who seem that see them as objects rather than as image bearers. Think about how the rest of Bathsheba's life went. Have you ever thought about this? What was it like to spend the rest of your life with a man who murdered your first husband? What was it like to know that every time he saw you and you saw him, you had to think about what you did? And what about the women Absalom slept with on the porch? When David returned, they couldn't go back to being his wives. It was against the law. They were violated and demeaned in the most horrible way. When men sin, it is the worst because they violate, destroy, and dismantle women and children. And so in Proverbs, this is the quintessential sin, isn't it? You heard it read earlier to Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. Son, if you want to wreck your life, the Proverbs say, commit adultery. Now, where do you think Solomon got that idea? There are parts of Proverbs, actually, that sound exactly, unmistakably like the story. Why? Because David told him. David told Solomon how his whole life was altered by the adultery, the lies, and the murder. When Adam and Eve sinned, God had told them, you will die. They may not have died in that moment, but sin brought death into their life and into our world to a degree they could not imagine. And that is still true. Death and sin are friends. They are connected So sin causes us to turn others into objects. Sin leads to lying, and then sin leads always to death. And lastly, in the final two verses of this chapter, sin brings God's wrath. Verse 27 says literally that this was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a truth that we need to recover today and not be ashamed of. The Lord hates sin. Let's not forget that or sugarcoat it. He hates sin. He hates what it does to others, the devastation that we have talked about this morning. But he also hates it because it is rebellion against himself. As bad as his sin was against others, David's sin, like our own, was ultimately against God. When God gets a hold of David later in this record, David will write these words in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. When Christ arrested Paul, you remember his words to Paul. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was confused, but he quickly learned, as David confessed, that his sin, as with all sin, my sin, your sin, all sin is ultimately directed against God. 
In our modern society, our friends and peers like to put God in the dock, the dock, not the place where you tie up the boat. Uh, this is a title from C.S. Lewis's a series of essays, God in the Dock. The dock in England was the place where the person on trial had to stand or sit. Last I was there, there's, there's still one of these docks in Philadelphia at Independence Hall from our, our days as an English country. A modern man, though, likes to put God in the dock, to put God on trial. We imagine a place in the next life, a platform from which we will lob questions and accusations. How could you have allowed this? Why didn't you give me that? But here's what David says. You can yap at God all you want, but you and I are the ones in the dock. David says that God has every right to be angry and that God will be seen on that day to be absolutely just when he judges. In fact, the scriptures teach us that on the day of judgment, the final day of judgment, even hardened unbelievers will have to say, will be forced to say, that was just. I do deserve this. Now step back with me for a moment. We've seen what David's sin meant, what it looked like. Unlike Paul, David was a believer, a follower of God when he did this. We might also turn, as we did last week, to the life of Peter. There was another man of faith who fell terribly, who denied Christ three times in the hour of Christ's greatest struggle. So let me ask you why. Why has God told us about these failures? Why has God built his church with men and women that are so frail and even unfaithful at times. It's not in order to trivialize sin. David's sin brought real devastation into his life. So these stories certainly do not encourage us to sin. So what is the point then? I think there are two great messages here that I want to remind you of this morning. First, there is truly no one who God cannot redeem. There is no one who God cannot redeem. With the recent events surrounding abortion, this is vital for us to recall. Even the most hardened, brutal person can be brought to faith. Even the most wayward believer like David can be restored, broken, and remade. And so there's no place for cruelty, for shouting, for screaming at our neighbors who support abortion and want this to continue. We see in David and Bathsheba, some of that same spirit is in each one of us. In each of our hearts, there is anger and lust, leading, as Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount, to murder and adultery. And God was able to save us, and he was able to save Paul and Peter and David, and there is no one who cannot be reached by his grace. And so we are to have hope and we are to pray for those who are shouting so angrily. We're going to pray tonight for those who are vandalizing our pro-life clinics. Pray that they might come to Christ, not just pray against them, but pray for them because there is no one outside the reach of God's grace for he has all power and all authority to call all people as he sees fit. Secondly, 
And just as important from these stories, from David, Paul, and Peter, and all the other stories of Scripture, we are reminded that salvation is exclusively and entirely of God. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God done to us, done for us, but never, ever done by us. We are utterly lost in our sin if left to ourselves. Even a man of great spiritual insight, such as David had, if left by God's spirit, if not forgiven, if not for the grace of God moment by moment, is bound for hell and disaster. And so we are reminded here once again of the marvelous grace, the sovereign grace of our God, and that salvation is from beginning to end his work. Paul puts it so well in Romans 5, 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Therefore, to God alone and to God entirely belongs all the glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you that you have given us in your wisdom these accounts so that we might be sobered concerning our own sin, sobered by the consequences of sin, and yet given great hope in the ultimate salvation that is offered in Christ. We thank you, Father, as well this day that salvation is utterly and entirely your work, and we depend and rely upon you exclusively for our salvation, knowing that you alone can change us, heal us, and guide us. We look to no good thing in ourselves, nor do we boast over our neighbors as if we had something of our own, but rather we come here as humble sinners, acknowledging that all we have is of you and that our salvation is your gift and your gift alone. How we praise you, Father, that in your mercy, you've taken sinners like us and sinners like David and Paul and Peter and brought us into your glorious presence. Father, you've done all this so that Jesus Christ, your son, might be glorified in all the earth, that he might receive all the praise of angels and martyrs, of men, women, and children, that all creation would cry out in praise to him. May he be lifted up. May all be drawn to him. May he be glorified. May his name grow in greatness. May every day the church grow in this land so that his name is proclaimed and so that he receives the glory, for he is worthy of all glory. And we do pray and offer ourselves to you anew in his most holy name. Amen.